0: Welcome to the Talking Recruitment podcast from the REC. Every week we look at all the latest insights, perspectives, and experiences from across our diverse recruitment industry. Hello again, everyone. And welcome to Talking Recruitment, the REC podcast. My name is Neil Carberry, the REC Chief Executive. It's a pleasure to have you along again to discuss some of the issues affecting our industry as we uh, move through the recovery. And uh, recovery is certainly what it is. Earlier in the month, we had our billings data for June published in the REC's report on jobs. And that was some of the strongest data we've ever published, certainly for permanent recruitment the strongest data ever and really close to all-time highs for temporary recruitment and we need to remember of course that temporary recruitment's been improving for 11 months now straight through the autumn and into into the spring so a really strong and sustained improvement there of course what that's led to is a candidate shortage and rising start and starting wages and that's on the lips of everyone across the industry and also in government and one of the big questions is what happens when the furlough scheme, unwinds and the impact of that. Certainly big opportunities for recruiters to make a difference for clients at the moment who are struggling with candidate shortage. And we're seeing lots of that in our discussions with all of you. As part of that, we are in the process of wrapping up all of the video content from our conference at the end of last month. That's going to be available to members on the REC website at the end of July. And uh, there's lots of quality content there about how to compete in this market that's well worth your time the other thing to look out for if you've entered the rec awards is the shortlist will be published soon and uh, i know we've had a lot of interest in getting everyone together at long last at the awards at the end of november so if you are shortlisted and you're interested in joining us on the night please get in touch with your your rec account manager Now, let's uh, turn to our guest for today. And uh, I think one of the big things we've seen over the last year is an acceleration in the digital transformation of the industry. So I'm delighted to welcome Phil Selleck to the pod today. Uh, Hello, Phil. Thank you for joining us. Hello. Thank you, Nick. Phil, maybe uh, I always like people to introduce themselves because you tell your story better than, than I would. Why don't you tell listeners a little bit about your background in the world of digital and technology?
1: Well, I've worked for telecoms and media companies in the technology space for probably about oh, 20 odd years now. Recently sort of took retirement to sort of go a bit more independent as well. But the last 10 years working for Liberty Global Virgin Media, um, basically on the last few years on things like artificial intelligence and machine learning in the entertainment space, and so lots of things we saw in there about pattern recognition and personalization and, and, you know, and, you know, as you can probably see today, if you turn on Netflix or now TV or someone, you'll you'll get a personal set of content to look at. But talking to one of your members, we were talking around how, how that might affect the recruitment business and some of these uh, machine learning and AI techniques that we've been using in entertainment, and they might be extended to use for assisting things like recruitment and and management of an area of staff that we used a lot in this area we've done traditionally perhaps come across lots of recruitment which is the graduate intake market
0: that's really interesting phil and i think it's obviously kind of hot topic how technology will change the industry and it's been a hot topic for years and there's sort of there's probably two quite entrenched school schools of thought one is that this this intermediate the industry and it's a big threat. The other is that this is an opportunity for us to focus the humans in the industry on the things that the humans do best, which is the relations and the landing and the understanding the offer of clients to potential candidates, especially in a time, as I was saying earlier, of extremely tight labour markets in lots of high-skill sectors and and Mm. areas like logistics, where... You want your clients to be positioned as an employer of choice and getting the humans focused on shaping that while well, the technology helps improve the impact of whatever you do i think is going to be a really big theme if you were to pick out sort of two or three ways in which more enhanced automation the, the kind of stuff that we have in the that we have at deployment or close to deployment now. And kind of some of the, the early stage AI tools that we're using now might reshape what recruiters should be thinking about for their businesses. What would be one or two of the key takeaways you'd want listeners to have?
1: Oh, yeah, sure. I think there's two areas. There's, as, as you say, there's this kind of the screening ability or the ability to find candidates from a huge pool of to not potentially obvious ones. My experience comes from software engineering areas and then there's the areas where you again deep mining techniques in sort of both trends and matching uh, sort of links between people's careers and cvs and what they've done which are not actually always as obvious as before i mean the first one i think is voice and video recognition the ability to have an and these are a little bit scary areas but voice recognition now is so highly accurate it can estimate your educational level obviously your your region, your attention, whether you're lying or not. You can also sense uh, whether you have the confidence that you have in terms of how you answer the questions. In effect, it's, it's a good way of being able to screen such that recruiters can find those key candidates very quickly and then, if you like, they're straight onto to the, the human interaction side rather than perhaps spend a long time trying to you know, wade through lots and lots of CVs. And I think you've already seen it now with CVs being... Sort of machine learn or scan to look for keywords, a bit like websites do. That's become now almost an industry where people now know how to tune their CV, to, if you like, to meet those criteria to get to the top of the list. Whereas voice and video recognition, recognizing how people interact or style, is much harder to fake. So I think that would surface the candidates. And we we did a lot of work on certainly in voice recognition. Say so the accuracy is so high now that you can. Ask a set of questions and it will give you a, a guidance on the confidence level of the person answering, whether they're under stress while they're answering, which can also be a confidence issue, whether they're actually sort of reading it from a script or not. So they pre- <laughs> pre-worked out the answer and they're reading it from off a piece of paper or whether they're making it up as they go along. And that would give you a profile about the candidate. Video recognition is a bit more invasive, of course. But again, that gives you just an extra bit more about how that candidate reacts in perhaps an interactive situation, a meeting simulation or something like that. These are all sort of techniques that can be used in a remote sense as well. So, you know, some of the barriers I'm sure you had already is physically getting in front of somebody where you you can only truly understand them. These kind of help get that area as well. The second area actually is machine learning. We did a lot of machine learning in for recommendation engines, which this is where a particular technique where you take a bunch of unstructured data, could be CDs, it could be work histories, it could be people that submit to blogs we took viewing patterns of people watching TV in Holland and we found these very unusual spikes. One of them was the, a Japanese anima cartoon, which is a quite a violent Japanese cartoon, correlated very highly with people that watched a soap opera very similar to EastEnders, that also commuted between Rotterdam and Amsterdam. So those three things don't normally, you know, you, if you're just saying those three things, a you know, human being, got, I can't understand why there's a connection there. But there clearly was. And there clearly it was distinct in the data. We never got to the bottom of it because it was was so entrenched in something perhaps cultural in those areas. But actually when we promoted content of that style for people that were commuting, we had a much larger or higher response rate. And I think it's the same perhaps with sort of, I mean, this obviously would be something that would take a while to do, but if you could look at people that were successfully recruited into jobs, so specific like a data scientist or a Java coder or whatever. And actually, if you found that, uh, for example, I'm going to make this up, that 90% of them studied anthropology at A-levels, but was also interested in um, extreme cycling or or climbing. You know, there's some correlations there which may bring forward some trends, which, again, would assist the industry in identifying not perhaps obvious candidates. One of our best data site team uh, leads, Chriscom uh, Masterstroke uh, data, sorry, a coder that we, oh, I haven't thought for nearly 10, you know, five, five years or so was a Russian guy who was superb, but his communication skills were quite poor and his CD was about 30 pages long. Now, ordinarily, it wouldn't be scandal picked up at all by most often be rejected because it's too long and too complex. And the person didn't interview very well, but actually there was some really big correlation in what he'd published in GitHub blogs and little articles he'd published about how he'd fix things completely off piece. We found that. And then when we did interview them, he's one of the best coders we ever had. So those two technologies for me, or those there's artificial intelligence, which both pre-screen people, such that you can then get the recruiter can really focus on a good relationship between what the client's looking for and interaction with that person, and then perhaps surfacing people that aren't so obvious, so that's you know a client's getting candidates into uh, a, a business that aren't most of the obvious ones at, to start with, but actually turn out to be very successful. And those are the two technologies I think we we saw perhaps quite useful in this area. The last thing that I we did see a lot of, which is not perhaps a technology thing, but I'm sure your guys have those, particularly in the data science area, particularly in the machine learning part of the data science area, particularly in what we call neural random tree learning, which is probably the most uh, prolific in that area. It's very young graduates that were coming in, and when I started as a graduate trainee, you know, obviously twenty odd years ago, you you work for a company. The company gave you a career path, you, know, you went on training courses, five years later, you got chartered or whatever, and, and you move job every three or four years. These individuals, are, you know, three months is a long time for them. And then, of course, they get snapped up by Google or they, you know, they get snapped up by Sky. And, then, and we see this continuous train of, of young data engineers, and certainly in the last three or four years, I saw this, they were only staying for three or four months, and then they were getting, I don't know, 40% more on their salary. But they were bouncing around companies, and it was almost a case of, well, who's actually managing their career? Because if they're not picking up or learning the new stuff, or if they're not perhaps building interpersonal skills or skills in terms of managing finance so that they can progress further down the line, the owner's there. And one of the things I think we we saw with, with certain recruitment agencies, as you said, have a strong connection with their client, very good understanding, We're almost acting like career mentors for these individuals. They expected them to be in one company for three or four months for a project, but then managed, said, well, where do you want to be in five years or manage their career around companies? And, and actually, in some cases, almost avoided them going for the big, obvious uh, high salary companies necessarily, because they do churn through graduates quite quickly and they churn through staff quite quickly. And it can be a bit career soul destroying when you're working on just pure analytics. So that was the three things that we see in the technology area. And I think from recruitment, we found that yeah, the, the this the increasingly, we saw big companies like Liberty were were starting to look more for smaller specialist recruitment firms that had that connection with what they were trying to do, rather than you know the, the mass CV gatherers, if you like.
0: I mean, that's really interesting. If I just run the rule over those that those pictures, there's a lot there actually. If you're a recruitment agency consultant, owner, director to be quite hopeful about in terms of uh, that whole piece about client advisory and finding career paths. I think that's going to be super important for two reasons, actually, not just the needs of candidates changing, but also because I think for the next couple of decades, candidates are going to have a lot of choice if they've got the right skill set. Um, mm-hmm. We're already seeing, uh, you know, as you've hinted at, big activity in terms of counter offers in sectors like IT and technology and sure. in and also in sector, uh, other sectors with really tight candidate supply driving is the obvious mm-hmm. one that's been in use for the last the last six weeks or so. But the other two bits, I mean, access to the passive candidate is the holy grail of recruitment because sure. fundamentally clients are not necessarily looking for the person who is trolling through indeed on a sunday night no i understand yeah you're right <laughs> that that person might be the right candidate but that that's quite a narrow pool and that person is already actively putting themselves out there a lot of the time what clients are looking for is a kind of pretty comprehensive view of the the market locally or in the sector mm-hmm. and access to the people with the that tick the right boxes in terms of what they need, so that that whole piece around kind of the read across from commuting manga loving uh, soap watchers in the Netherlands <laughs> yes, to yeah. people with different aspects on their CV or in their LinkedIn or other activity, I think that's really interesting as a sure. as something that we that we as an industry look to mine. And I think it's interesting. You see the bigger players in the industry increasingly looking in their acquisitions activity to look at bringing software capability into the business so that they can design yes, the software yes. running alongside the business. Because we all know that mm-hmm. the critical thing is focusing on making it work for the business and for the people who are running it. The voice and video recognition thing just feels to me like um, the kind of automation that saves time and gets consultants onto stuff that adds real value. So there's a, all of that feels really relevant to me. I, I suppose the question that would be in my mind if I was listening to this as a as a smaller agency owner, um, a specialist in a particular sector, so niche mm. deep, deep and narrow, is I can see how that's helpful to the industry for really big players who can be agglomerators so they can have all of the technology so clients don't have to have it. Mm. Uh, what about baby steps for smaller firms on this stuff? What yeah, sure. is there that? firms that aren't turning sort of 100 million pounds over every year should be doing and thinking about to access some of this i mean other generics or the beginnings of things that out there that would allow the the kind of the more regional player to up their game
1: at least gradually i think there there are some tools actually for that um particularly from from amazon oddly because amazon aren't the search engine so the traditional search engine providers like google make most of their money out of search engines whereas Amazon doesn't. It's more of a logistics firm, but it's AWS services, which I'm sure your members know about, provide tools that provide the ability to span and search. And some of those tools still require a little bit of complex setup, but they are getting simpler such that you can use that to troll across. You're looking for CVs for candidates, but you're also then looking across what they're publishing on, say, GitHub or what they're publishing on TIC or what they're publishing on other areas. I mean, you say about the passive candidate, one of the key things about a passive candidate that is strong. What I thought was found strong, particularly in the technology area, has been they're active across many things. So, you know, you, you're the, the, the perfect guy that you want as a passive candidate in the software development guy is the guy that has it as a hobby as well. He's the guy that's kind of, up, you know, doing hackathons at the weekend and, you know, e-conferences and so on like that. It's not just the guy that shows up nine to five. So find as you say, finding those are quite hard, but of course, they also will be very active in other areas around their field. So again, that's an area that a small company can find. The second thing is, you're absolutely right, you Neil, know, that the biggest change of all, I mean, Virgin Media used to effectively be a systems integrated. would buy systems from multiple vendors and it would glue them together. And that has totally changed in the last five years. It's in-house most of that software development from not just the gluing, but actually the system itself So, from the ground up. Open source style coding environments and bringing in a lot of coders, you know, in you know, the many hundreds rather than the many tens. That's the first thing where a business like that is in sourcing and running those teams, It's now building those teams internally. Some of the skills that are needed in that area are quite very specialist and such that you know, the HR departments of even very big companies are almost delegating out the candidate sourcing piece, if you like, to the team leaders of that specialist area. So in our case, there's a particular area of a a TV set-top box, which is embedded software, as it's known. It's quite a specialist area. Those big recruitment companies and Indeed.com and so on, you won't find people on there with those skills. You have to find a recruiter that is intimate with that particular style of software development and actually can find those sort of smaller developers or smaller companies that provide those skills. When you in-house stuff, it's not quite as easy because you have to you have to find that stuff. The last area, as well, of a lot of the technology companies at the moment, they are consolidating. You're starting to see telecoms consolidate. You know, mobile companies joining with fixed lines, media companies joining with OTT providers. So they're all combining and consolidating, but they're also <laughs> expanding into new areas. I, I can tell you now that a lot of those big companies will make massive PR statements about moving into what they call Internet of Things technologies, or they're moving into digital healthcare. And underneath there, there would be be five guys literally going, how the hell do we do this? And again, what they don't want to do, historically what you would do is the classic consulting model is you, you go, right, we're going to go in this market, let's get PwC and they'll do some massive market study and we'll come up with a load of slides and eventually we'll get around to probably doing something. That's changing. What people are now saying is, well, actually, we know we want to let's go and experiment a bit in that market. Let's build some prototypes. Let's go out and do some, get some sample customers and see how the market reacts to it. Because they know that some of that consulting stuff doesn't necessarily give you everything you need. Obviously, it gives you some of the bigger market broad brush, but we've seen markets developing technologies very quick very rapidly completely unforecast you know the, the whole change of how broadband is changing how we've gone into different phone technologies that stuff is harder so i'd say to the the niche of recruiters or the persons that, that are highly specialized there are a big barrier in companies where hr only have a few recruitment companies particularly in certain areas i won't say everywhere it, is definitely changing because they don't have the knowledge of embedded C++ coding knowledge. They don't have that in HR. So they do delegate a lot more responsibility to the hiring manager, if you like, who is an expert in the area. And also big recruitment firms or big recruitment you know, like Monster and Indeed and uh, LinkedIn and so on to a degree, they also can't find those people because as you say, they're not active on it. So you, if you're going to find those Specialists, and I think those specialists are coming across on many areas now. Not just, as you say, when you in-house something, you pick up all of the kind of legacy and the nitty-gritty with it. Hence, if you're going to build yourself a position, you need a really strong recruiter to find you those candidates. And I know, you know, one of your members of we which we used in the past was trying to find those particular embedded coders. Was had to be, you had to use a specialist recruiter to find them. So I think that's the area. I, I wouldn't be scared of of going into. If you're a in some of those emerging areas, digital healthcare is obviously going to be big next year. We've already seen it because of the pandemic with just things like the NHS app, how much that's gone from being some sideline thing that was nowhere to now used by many people. You, you'll, st- I think you'll start to see that for many digital healthcare organizations, Boots, Lloyd's Pharmacy, Bupa, even gyms will start to use applications. So that digital, that technology move, it's is already started, plus there's new technology areas, 5G. It's an overused subject, but 5G has a lot of areas which are quite specialist that assist with connected cars and so on. Those are areas it's very hard to find people that have 5G skills. Um, you know, your classic recruiter might say, I want someone that's got 10 years worth of 5G skills, or 5G was only launched about four years ago. So actually, you do need to find that they're recruited there because, well, I've got this candidate here. I've got this client that's looking for a 5G tester, but I've got a candidate here that has four or five for the skill sets that are very appropriate for that role. That, again, you can't do that on mass very easily. You know, It has to be someone that really, really understands the client and really, really understands their candidate pool that, that they can select from in order to supply those areas. And certainly those areas are moving very fast and they're, they're moving very quickly. The pandemic is almost certainly going to push a lot more of that technology, but also, also the um, medical science areas as well. So the epidemiology research and um, life sciences, they're probably going to be massively expanding areas as well. So, I think that, yeah, I wouldn't worry too much. I don't think that recruiters will have a problem being um not busy. <laughs> There's lots of interesting messages for recruiters in there, and not least that you join
0: us on the optimistic bench for for the future of the industry in terms of that specialism and the kind of access to passive candidates skill set that that recruiters can bring and all of the all of the things that you you've been talking about across that that answer. I think for me, One of the things that is most interesting here is the capacity for recruitment firms themselves to be centers of excellence on this in terms of the systems we build to address those client needs. And we're already seeing the development of a higher trained deploy model in parts of the industry where there is a really sharp skills crisis, where the relationship with the client is trusted enough and reliable enough that kind of annuity business that we talk about in the the industry that you are willing to invest in a training center and training for people to get them to the place they uh, you need them to be that's one really interesting development the other i think something that i come back to time and again is you talk about trying stuff failing fast rather than doing kind of big market analysis and then big investment into something, a big deployment of something new. I think that is a lesson that being self-reflective, every business and every business leader in the whole country is having to learn, but recruitment no less so than than any other, which is Mm. I think if you look at the the kind of technology stack that exists amongst for recruitment firms, there's an awful lot of stuff in it. And mostly it's at the moment it's mostly it super automation rather than more machine learning led, but the skill set that you need inside the business to understand some of this stuff and to understand what you do need to go and buy and what you don't need to go and buy strikes me as a, a, a as one of the big critical success factors for firms doing this. Well, it's interesting, you know, we met because you were talking to an R, uh, an REC mm-hmm. member about, about what they were thinking about. And one of the pieces of advice I often give to recruitment leaders is, well, first, they don't buy what you don't understand. Two, don't think a big price tag is necessarily hugely important to beginning to transform and i think that speaks to your kind of stick a toe in the water and fail fast or or ramp it up point but thirdly and most importantly have some people on your staff who are natives to the skill sets that you're trying to bring put into action because i think where many firms of all sectors fall down is that they get sold on a vendor's idea and then the delivery isn't quite what was promised and the program management is maybe a little far from the core of the business. I mean, if you were looking, for instance, at uh, the business you've been advising, if you were looking at taking the first few steps along this path and navigating that sense of, I want to make sure any money I spent is spent well, and I want to make sure that I understand that the what I'm buying uh, links to what we're trying to achieve what would your advice be around you know, what to do with your internal team as a recruitment business
1: yeah i think the you're right about having the skill sets in those areas and again those those skill sets are are generated you don't ha- you don't have to necessarily be you know a top end java coder to be a, a good recruiter but you do need to understand the industry so there's plenty of conferences that you can attend there's plenty of forums and online stuff to understand what is the big key issues in those areas the fail fast thing is interesting actually a lot of the fail-fast thing, one of the biggest lead times for a fail-fast thing, we, we had a lot of innovation technology strands that we used to run in Virgin where we would want to put a project together for about six months. Now, we had been using, are we were using a, 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 a company that had a, basically an innovation deployment team. So that was a, basically a pre-built software group of engineers, stroke program manager, if you like, that could basically be deployed very quickly because they were a good team worked together very well in the past there was none of that startup pain you know where obviously if you've got to build a team you've got to build a leader and then you've got to recruit five other people so actually understanding the industry you can gain watching a lot of areas and some of those trending conferences that you see and it, depends, it, it I always think the best conferences to go to just look at who's speaking at them you know obviously a lot of the conferences are people get rung up and go do you would you want to speak at the conference and and it's just to fill a gap but if you see some really strong industry leaders at our conference that's normally a sign that that conference is quite good often you actually say if you go to a client that wants to do the fail fast approach if you can place a team in there, even if it's just for a small, small period of time, about three to six months uh, ago, but they, that team rolls on to different projects, if you like, different short-term projects, that's a very good, quick way of getting going. And often that would be a project we want to put a trial together, for example, and we wanted the trial would go out to about 100,000 users. There was a pre-installed foundation base that we, we could, could deploy it on, but we wanted to try an, a, a new interactive service or a new a new way of, of, of doing voice recognition often half the lead time was trying to build the team, trying to borrow from the existing factory that's building other services. I mean, it becomes messy, where it actually, it was really convenient to just talk to this one company and go, right, can we have a team of five? And they would be, you know, you could bring them on a Thursday, they would be starting on a Monday, and you'd be into your sprints the second week, and you'd have something go within three weeks of the board approving a a trial, you'd have a demo going. And, And that's something to think about. Don't just think about the individual candidate, as you said, bringing in a team, if you've got a collection of candidates that you think could form a team and have worked together in the past, that's sometimes a good offer. I mean, obviously, you have to think that you're not recruiting somebody for 10 years. It's someone that you'd be recruiting in that case for perhaps three to six months. But obviously, then as that team goes in and as you get specialists, if that trial then moves on to be a proper stage and then an ultimately deployed production, you're in a far better place because you will understand what went wrong in the trial, what went right in the trial, what team members worked well. You had a testing guy that was more of a a non-automated testing rather an automated testing guy, and that didn't really work well. So let's next time, let's get swapping for somebody else that is quite better than that. You'll get that knowledge in three months, and you'll have the... And I, and I would say, from my experience, that then that would go into production. The first thing the production de- deployment teams would do would ring you up and say, can I get permanent members like this, please, to help me for the next 18 months build this? So often, if you can get in on the trials groups or the innovation groups of some of these big technology companies, they will have very short-term, quick projects which won't have the necessary four months of diligence from HR and, and filling in loads of forms. <laughs> if you can bring them a team, maybe it starts with one person, but you're on you're with the client, so talking them how you can manage that innovation roll into a, a, you know, a three to six-month trial. You're then getting knowledge of the business in a very low-risk area, but to both people, you know, the client's it's a low risk to the client because it's not asking you to recruit someone for years. Then, as that trial is successful—if it is successful—you're going to be in that area straight away. I mean, it's what the big companies do a lot of. The big consulting firms are all over the R and D boards. They're all over the innovation boards. They're all over the technology owners because they know if they can get in early on a trial, they're very likely to pick up the production, and then all of a sudden, they've got the business from start to end. So, yeah, find the find the directors of innovation or the, the heads of department that run technology trials. Get in with those guys and bring them the temporary stuff, perhaps, to start with. Uh, that would be, I would say, a good way of starting. In terms of investing in search engine and IT stuff, I don't think that many of this stuff has been developed yet. I think there are spider engines or urchin engines that can do this, that can go across GitHub and look for keywords or key plugins around a particular individual so you can find those you know, passive candidates. But I don't think there's something you can buy off the shelf right at this moment in time that would do that. That's really, really helpful, Phil and look that's been a great kind of run around the issues that you see as a
0: kind of tech specialist looking at our industry and that was our goal for today was to kind of start to think about these issues something that's on my mind at the rec because this is an area where i think our business advice service which we're launching which we're launching over the summer and ramping up through the autumn should be able to help members think about the first few steps that they take on their, their ongoing transformation, given the amount of technology that will reshape the industry over the next uh, decade and more. But that's been a super useful introductory run round. And Phil, thank you for giving up
1: your time to
0: the REC podcast today.
1: No, thank you, that's really good. It's been a real interesting talking to your, your member and, and yourself you know, about uh, recruitment. And, and I've learned a lot about how recruitment works background. So thank you very much. Thanks, Phil. And
0: thank you to all of you for joining us on this edition of Talking Recruitment. If you've enjoyed this one, why not uh, have a dig into our back catalogue, wherever you uh, get your podcasts. If you'd like, for instance, some insight into leadership in recruitment from some of our leaders of larger recruitment firms in the UK, there's a triptych of uh, recruitment leaders in this year's episodes 10, 11 and 12. Tim Cook from Engage, Tina McKenzie of Staffline Ireland and Paolo Canoa of GI Group, which are all worth a listen uh, for some different insights into the challenges of the last year and the opportunities of bouncing back. But thank you again for joining us today. And I'll look forward to joining you again on another episode of Talking Recruitment, the REC podcast. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Join me for another episode soon. And check out our back catalogue at rec.uk.com to catch up on some other fantastic discussions that are really helpful for recruiters. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. So subscribe to REC Podcasts to never miss an episode.